Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here and once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Hey, what's up, podcast listeners? Today, we are talking to George Morris, a serial entrepreneur and community leader. Uh, One of George's most notable companies is a digital agency out of Boulder, Colorado called Emulus. Now, George founded that company and ran that for 13 years before uh, leaving that recently. And he went and started a uh, a Techstars-backed company, a consumer product called EDN, Eden, how that's pronounced. But after determining that there wasn't a product market fit for Eden, George left and is now running two businesses in parallel. He's got an entrepreneurial sidekick business called The Framework, which I'm really interested to talk to George more about what that means, and uh, also a virtual digital agency called V16. And it's his goal to blend these two companies into a new network of lifestyle entrepreneurs in 2017. Now, outside of his companies, George is the current president of the Colorado Chapter of Entrepreneurs Organization, uh, also known as EO, and former founder of TEDx Boulder, which is totally awesome. And he's a single father of his two best creations, Jillian and Kyle. Welcome to the program, George. Hey, thanks for having me, Brent. So, George, why don't you kick it off here uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, what your current business is? Sure. Uh, so a little bit about myself. Um, I started out, I guess, in 2000. I joined a company uh, doing interactive work called Refinery. And uh, we were in the Boulder area. Uh, we were a satellite office from the Philadelphia main office. And uh, we ran that office for about two years, right through the dot-com bust. And when they shut down that office, I started up Emulus, which was my uh, digital agency that I had. And we started that up around 2002, 2003. And serviced a bunch of clients. Um, you know, we had clients from small mom and pop shops. I think our first comp- uh, first client was a local YMCA, and then our next client was a, a huge um, corporate entity. So we had a we had a fairly wide gamut. And before we before I left the business, uh, our biggest client was Boy Scouts of America. Uh, we're doing a variety of work at the time, uh, working through uh, mobile apps, websites, uh, UI UX, all of that good stuff. And then I left that in 2015 and started up a uh, consumer product company called Eden. Um, that was a Techstars-backed company. And we didn't really have a product consumer market match. And so I stepped out of that in the summer of this past year. And now I've been working on two other companies, um, Emulus. Eventually went out of business, and I picked up some of their clients and started a business called V16, which is a virtual agency. And I also started a consulting practice called The Framework to help entrepreneurs um, that are kind of stuck, and they just want a temporary business partner slash coach to come in there and help them for a few months, and then I step out. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. Wow. Um, that's, you got a lot going on right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. Not to mention EO, right? So a uh, local chapter president of EO, uh, entrepreneur organization in Colorado. And, uh, that takes a good chunk of my time as well. Um, but all in all, there's, there's lots of, lots of stuff that's in flux for me. That's for sure. I, I don't think at this point, there's any question that you're an entrepreneur, right? I think you've, you've got that one. That piece is pretty much nailed. 
Yeah, I mean, it's I'm, I'm screwed. You know, when I first started, <laughs> when I first started business, I remember uh, talking to a woman who was an entrepreneur, and this was about 2002, 2003. And I did it for about two or three months, and she said, uh, once you've done this, you can never go back into the working world because you've had a taste for it and you can't go back. I had a business prior to starting uh, – prior to joining Refinery. Um, I did that for a year. It was also uh, a web agency, um, but I was failed miserably at that. I think my overall revenue that year was maybe $1,200. <laughs> so, so at Refinery, were you, you were a team member there, and then, and then you started your own, your own agency? Yeah, you got it. I, I had my company prior and uh, I applied for a job at uh, Refinery, worked there as a front-end developer for a while, what was a web developer, um, and then moved over to program, uh, program uh, project manager. And then after that, uh, kind of transitioned into kind of a sales role. So when I moved out to the Boulder office from Philadelphia, um, I was kind of in all three positions, just trying to help start that office up. And I really fell in love with that, that vibe, you know, small company, kind of your back against the wall, trying to make a name for yourself. And I just really loved that aspect of doing the work. So, I mean, obviously you've got like the dot-com bust. It sounds like maybe refinery kind of went away or downsized or whatever. Uh, Mm -hmm. Why, why did you decide to start your own agency like do you remember back then like what was like that catalyst or that main motivator for you <laughs> yeah I, I didn't want to go back to philadelphia um <laughs> that's the real reason i mean at the end of the day they offered uh myself they offered me a job to go back to philadelphia and be an account executive and i didn't want to do that i had experience with a company prior that i tried running with absolutely no business background and so my boss at the time, Brett Heinrichs, uh, he's a great friend of mine now, but he said to me, he's like, why don't you go off and start your own company up? You guys can make this work. If the three of you get together, um, you know, you can keep costs low. You have all the skills to get the skill sets to make this work. And the three of us at the time was myself, um, my business partner, John Skufka, who was a, a programmer and my business partner, Scott Hooten, who was a, a designer. So we really had the main skill sets all covered to start the business. And we figured, why not? So you had yourself and two other business partners. Yep. What what was that like having a three partner business? Because I mean, I I have a business partner, and I've it's actually the same partner I had when I ran my agency. And uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to make a partnership with just one other person work. What, what was it like for three partners? You know, Refinery had I believe eight or ten uh, owners of the company, and I thought that was chaotic. And so when we went to three, I was like, this is great. I mean, three is, <laughs> three is a lot better than eight or ten. Um, and, you know, I, I believed for the first six or seven years, it went really well. We all just did our things. We all had our hands in the work. We were all doing the work. The problems really started to manifest for us when we tried to scale because what I realize now looking back at it with a different lens – um, my business partners were more employees. I mean, even today, now that Emulus is out of business, uh, both John and Scott have full-time jobs elsewhere. Um, mm. And I realized that they really liked doing the work. I enjoyed doing the work, but I also wanted to step out of it, and I wanted to find people to do what I did but do it better. And I wanted to kind of level up my game to grow and scale the company at that time. And we just started to have – more or less disagreements in terms of the overall vision and where we need to take the company. And I felt like I kept grabbing the bull by the horns and pulling the company in one particular direction. 
And if I'm honest with myself, I think John and Scott really didn't want to take it there. But I'm a pretty hard-headed kind of guy. <laughs> so you, you made know, it really easy for them, right? Exactly. Like I, I just, I just pushed it forward despite the way that they felt. And um, you know, they're they're good guys. I mean, they meant well. It was just uh, being in business with me and being so adamant about this is where we need to go. I was just dragging them along. And in retrospect, if I knew what I knew now, I probably would have left probably in 2009, 2010, and let them just kind of run the company the, the way they wanted to run it. How big, like when you guys, you know, you said you, you tried to scale, right? So <laughs> like, where was that comfortable, like happy place where you guys were all like, you know, smiles and the business was doing well and the partnership was doing well? Like at what, what was that? I don't know if it's like, if you want to tell me like revenue size or how many employees yeah. you guys had, like where was the business happy? And then where, where were you trying to take it that it became like, you know, more stressful or it became like not what you guys all wanted together? Well, I mean, I have a hard time remembering size and exact figures and revenue, but I, I'll just go with what I, what I remember. I mean, I feel that the best time at Emulus was when we were about maybe – nine people that seemed like a nice intimate size. I think our revenue at the time might have been 1.2 million, something like that. Um, and it was just, it was great. We all knew each other. We all went out to lunch together. It just felt like a family and you could trust everybody. You knew what everybody was working on and it was great. Um, where it started to get absolutely chaotic is when we got up to about 26 people. Um, I, I took the advice from several friends that said, you want to go from small to relatively mid-sized rather quickly and get out of that mid-sized space. So when we were nine people and I'm looking at growing the company, my thought was let's not hang at 15, 16, or 17. Let's get up above 20. Let's ideally get to 30 people quickly because our whole clientele mix is going to shift as we scale this thing. Because as we grow, we're going to have to have a hierarchy. We're going to have to have people that are managers of other people. Those people are going to require skills. They're going to require more money. So therefore, we're going to have to require bigger clients and attract bigger clients so that we can keep our margins where they are. And uh, we didn't do that so well. Um, <laughs> so, you know? so did the business just kind of become unprofitable and then that became stressful? Or was it just like so many more moving parts like that was the stressful part? Um, it was pressure, I think, just in the, the economy, and it was also pressure from the size and the market itself. I mean, our margins were best when we were about nine people. We had great margins. Uh, everything was just clicking really well. And as we scaled and we were bringing in the higher-priced people, um, also because of competitively in the Boulder-Denver area, you had some other companies moving into the area that were sucking up all the resources. So salaries just became way more competitive. Um, so our margins were getting cut – um, slowly over time. And it wasn't like we weren't profitable for a long time. Uh, we were profitable. It's just you kept seeing that margin go down, down, down. And then in around 2014, we started not to be profitable. And at that point, you know, shit hit the fan. <laughs> it became unfun. Yes, it became very unfun. No Christmas point. party this year. Everybody's unhappy. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much true. In 2014, we had a Christmas party, but it was definitely dialed back. <laughs> What's what's your? Uh, it sounds like you have some relationship with your your partners now, or was there like a big falling out at the end of this? You know, I, I Scott and I. I mean, John and I uh, kind of asked Scott to leave the business um, back in two thousand thirteen, two thousand fourteen, 
And uh, he left, and it seems like he's a lot happier over at where he's at now, which is Voltage. And I believe he just got a promotion uh, yesterday. So he looks like he's doing great. Um, I haven't really spoken to him much. When I left, uh, John ran the company, and he pulled in my right-hand man at the time, which his name was Alex. And Alex and John ran the company, and they rebranded it into a company called Axial. And they ran that for about nine months, um, but then things just went completely south on them. So they shut the business down in August of this past year. And when they shut down, I jumped in and I grabbed what I could of their clients because I had relationships with a lot of them. And I also contracted out with John so he could work with me to kind of transition clients and also service those clients. And since then, John just got a job last month and I've been working with uh, a more or less virtual team that I've put together through Upwork. And this is this is basically V sixteen. So you're like 16, you're, yep. you're going back in and and like, I mean, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but like reimagining what an agency could be like for you, or is this just like a, something you're doing in the meantime, or like what is what is V sixteen now, and how is it kind of picking up the pieces? <clears throat> yeah, so I mean, I'm transitioning into a role where I want to do more entrepreneurial work with entrepreneurs, um, but in the meantime, I'm kind of bridging that gap with V sixteen. Because when I left Imulus, really what I wanted Imulus to do was get rid of uh, the idea of an office. I wanted to take our team and turn it to a virtual team because we could attract talent from all over the world rather than competing within the Boulder, Denver pool of employees. I thought we'd find better talent. We'd be able to increase our margins and we would have a distributed team that's working you know, all the time essentially. And that's really where I wanted to go, but John and Alex both didn't want to go to that uh, that spot. So V16 is kind of my attempt to go there, and it's bridging the gap for where I'm at, where I'm at right now, where I want to be um, with my skill set and bringing in revenue. But I'm also holding it out there in the sense of if I can build up several clients that are retained under V16. Then I'll spin that off and I'll bring in somebody to kind of grow that piece of the agency and build that up. Um, so I have the two companies that I'm, that I'm in, but my full time will be into the, the framework consulting thing that I'm building up now. Do you see agencies out there that are doing really well at that um, like 30 to 40 to 50 person size? I, I've talked to a few companies and I feel like that's a really, really difficult like place to ultimately achieve like it feels like a lot of companies just the culture like you've said it, it changes significantly when you go from you know 10 people to 30 people and i've seen i guess you know a couple of of agency owners that have ended up having to like part ways or kind of you know uh, actually one of the other guests on our podcast phil lockwood i think found kind of the same thing they got up to like that 60 or 70 thing and then he, he was like i want out this is this is not profitable <laughs> right. anymore right like so right. like what is is that a fool's errand for people to hope for a business that an agency type business to scale or have you seen other companies out there that have, have done that really well? I think there's companies that have done it well. Um, you know, I, I hear, I hear stories of people who have kind of wrapped up shops similar to what Phil did and I did. Um, but I look at examples like Spire Media with Mike Gelman, you know, they, they seem to hover right around that number and they seem to do just fine. Um, another one I think of is Vigit. Um, they're out of Falls Church, uh, back in the DC area and um, Brian Williams runs that company. I, I talk to him every now and then, and they seem to be just kicking ass. You know, they they keep growing year after year, and I want to say they're probably up around eighty people at this point. Um, so I know it can be done. Um, it's just that it's it's a tricky thing to do. I think it really depends on your client mix and the type of clients and how much revenue from each client you're getting to pull that off. And there's probably some element of luck in that. 
Do you find that 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 push for you to want to be virtual? Maybe was that that was happening while you were at Emulus, and was that like one of the conflicts that ended the business, or was that something that you just kind of are now looking back as more of a retrospective of we should have been like this? Yeah, no, I, I at that time I really wanted to go there. Um, I know when we got when we asked Scott to leave. Uh, there was a period of time where I spoke to John and Alex and I said, you know, we really should go to a virtual model. And I didn't really have support in that. Uh, yet I just, you know, I, I think I just passively played along with John and Alex on that one and just said, all right, well, if I don't have support on making this uh, virtual thing work, I'm just going to continue doing what we're doing. Um, but in my gut, I knew it wasn't the right way to go. And, you know, shame on me for not pushing harder to take it to a virtual model, um, or leave or leave earlier. Um, but it was a, it was a lot of fear too. You know, at that point when I felt like we really needed to pivot the company, um, I didn't really feel like there was any other option for me other than trying to make this work. And if my, uh, two main colleagues are looking at this and saying, no, we can't go to the virtual model, then I'm really without any other option. So I have to make this work yet. My heart really wasn't into it if I'm honest, you know, and, uh, the two years following that was just a struggle. You know, I, I just I wish I could have done that all differently. But you live and you learn. You guys had chosen to run a, 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 a an agency with a physical location in a very expensive area <laughs> yes, like Boulder, did. Colorado, right? And, and I think you've seen we've seen a lot of digital agencies uh, in Boulder. Did you find that being in that kind of a hot market gave you like great talent but also gave you like great competition like was it worth it being in some some place like that uh or is it was that ultimately part of the problem that's a great question i would say no there was no advantage to having an office in boulder um here's my here's my main reasons i mean Put it this way, our office that we ended up with was the coolest office. It was all, <laughs> you know. I remember. Like, it was really cool. I mean, no, I don't think you saw this last one. Was we ended not, up. It okay. was down by Pearl Street. I oh, mean, it no, was no, cool. no, I didn't Brick, see that. concrete, beautiful, old, vintage kind of stuff. And um, man, I if if I could have that office earlier on in the life of Emulus, I would have cut off an arm for that office. But. At the end of the day, it gave us no advantage. If anything, it hindered us because it was really difficult to park down there. The office expense was quadruple what we would have spent if we would have stayed outside of the city limits. Um, therefore, because it was hard to park, people wanted to stay home. They didn't want to fight the traffic to come into the office. So we gained no benefit of uh, a really cool office because people just didn't want to come into the really cool office. <laughs> and if anything um, – it just made people browse around Pearl Street more and grab coffee and grab lunch rather than being in the office and getting the work done they need to get done. You know, I just – it sounds cool. I just – and I know I've talked to other owners that uh, have had agencies or have agencies. But this whole notion um, that we that we kind of inherited from the early 2000s of – um, you know, having whiskey in the office and ping pong tables and video games and all that bullshit. Um, I feel like if a lot of us were to do it all again, we would just eliminate all of those things. We wouldn't try to be the Googles or the Apples of the world. We would just come in, do really great work, get the job done, go grab happy hour with everybody and call it good. 
With your virtual agency now, I mean, obviously one of the challenges is that you don't get to sit and watch people work. Not that sitting and watching people work is the the, the best (laughs) use of your time, but is there anything that you've learned now that you've started to do it a different way that's getting you the same results of having that like team that's all in one place or, um, you know, having people spread out all over the world? Like, are there anything that you're doing right now that's getting you the same or better results, but with obviously a much lower overhead smaller footprint yeah i mean it's just really a matter of being extremely clear on what needs to get done um and responding to people as quick as possible because i have people in several different time zones the the most extreme time zone is a guy over in switzerland um you know so if he has a question and he gets stuck on something if i don't get back to him asap you know he's going to fall into the evening hours and disappear Um, and you know, when my afternoons are happening, you know, he's, he's getting ready to wake up the next day as my evening's hitting. And it's, it's a very small window of opportunity to communicate. So it makes communication all that more important to be really precise about what it is that you're asking for from somebody and to have all your ducks in a row. Um, you do lose that collaboration and that free form thought and the ability to read each other's body language. You know, the one thing I haven't made use of really is any kind of video chat, you know, to get on and, and um, collaborate with people. Instead, we're just communicating over Slack and Instant Messenger and, and email. Um, so I think there's a way for me to improve it. It's just early on in the process. And um, I, I know I can make it better. It's, not, it's never going to be the same as working in person, but um, I don't want it to be the same as working in person. I think there's advantages to the, the virtual model. Did, uh, did exiting Emulus affect you personally at all? Like, was it something that, you know, I mean, obviously where you, it was a company you helped build over, you know, mm-hmm. 10 or 12 years. Like, what was it like to say, I'm done with this? <laughs> it was, it was an amazing hit to the ego. I mean, it, it was my baby. I mean, for years I grew that company and that's how I identified myself, George, you know, co-founder of Emulus. And that's how people knew me. And, uh, you know, I, I love the company. I love doing work with the clients. And to leave the company just felt like giving up on my children. And it, it was just such a hard thing to do. And then to kind of re-identify myself um, or re-image myself after I left the company was tricky. I remember the month that followed, uh, you know, going to any kind of networking event, EO event or anything like that. When people asked me what I did, I told them I was a mountain biker. <laughs> and, and they're like – Seems like a wow. good job description, right? Like, <laughs> right? And they're like, wow, so you're an EO and you're a mountain biker, so you're professional? I'm like, no, not at all. I'm completely amateur. I ride around the hills of Boulder all the time. <laughs> uh, just because I couldn't come up with anything better. And uh, that that lasted for a month or two until I got into my next thing. Do you think there's any anything that you've learned about maybe how you associate yourself with your own your own business. I mean, obviously, if you're saying like, you know, George Morris and Emulus, co-founder of Emulus was like a huge part of like your personal identity. Like, do you think that that experience has changed how you might associate yourself with the businesses that you own, like from here on out? Or is that just like a cost of doing business to just have part of your identity, your, your self-worth wrapped up in the, the worth of the business? Mm, fantastic question. I would say... um I just get better at handling that. At the end of the day, anything that I create has my own personal brand tied to it. And there's a level of integrity uh, that I want to bring to any one of the companies that I'm working on. So 
I, I don't think there's I don't think there's a way for me to kind of detach myself from the business and still make the business work. Uh, at the end of the day, there's always going to be an ele- element of me wrapped into the company, and um, I don't think that's ever going to be something that I'll be able to step away from. Was there something that you did um, along the way at Emulus uh, that really um, that kind of worked really well, or was like a professional like aha or pivot point for you, where you're like, like you had an awakening during that twelve years where you maybe did something that worked really really well for the business? Yeah, I would say the best thing I did when I was at Emulus was get mentors. Um, you know, I, I didn't have a board of directors. I mean, we weren't, we weren't a big company, but I wanted people outside of the company with business experience that could come in and talk to John Scott and I and tell us what they were seeing or question us, you know, call bullshit on some of the things that we were doing. And, um, you know, that's, that's something I put in place right as we were trying to scale the company. Cause I felt like here we are three guys that have no business experience trying to grow this thing. And why aren't we bringing in people who've already done this to kind of give us a few pointers? Why are we trying to recreate the wheel? And so pulling them in to help us and consult with us, I thought was one of the best things we could have done. Now, how we handled that, that's entirely different. You know, that was a, that's a separate story. But, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I mean, we got advice, right? Um, and when the, when the advisors came in and they would say to us, hey, you should be looking at this, you should be looking at that, uh, why aren't you doing this or why aren't you doing that? I took it to heart. And I said, okay, well, yeah, let's put these systems in place. Let's put these processes in place. Let's, let's change the way we're hiring. And I feel like John and Scott heard it. But it went in one ear and out the other, and that's really where I feel that the conflict started to arise. Um, you know, I they were really just happy doing the work that they were doing and keeping it small and playing it small. I got caught up in the ego game of growing a company. I mean, <laughs> which, which is everybody. which is fine, right? I mean, obviously, you wanted to grow the business, but they weren't maybe as quite as entrepreneurial driven as maybe you were, right? You know, Brent. I mean, yeah, that's that's right. I wanted to grow the business, but I really, looking back at it now, I realized that I wanted to grow the business because uh, I, for the wrong reasons. I wanted to grow it because I wanted to say, "Look what I did," right? I wanted to grow it because I had ego at play. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to grow it for the right reasons. And the right reasons would be to build a better, healthier company that can do great work for great clients and scale to grow it into something that I could later sell. It was more or less, look at what I've done. I built this masterpiece, man, aren't I great? Like that's, that's really the driver that was in me at that time. Looking back at it, I don't know if I'd make the same decisions today. Um, I probably would have just left it go and moved on and tried something other. Any insight into any kind of signs that sometimes it's, it's hard to to read the label from inside the bottle, right? So, any yeah. any insight for like <laughs> like types of thoughts that one might be having if they're currently growing their business for ego's sake and and maybe not growing the business for what you're saying, which is the right reasons of you know maybe profit or exit or uh, you know. Uh, serving great clients like you know any any kind of things that somebody might be on the lookout for to yeah. check themselves uh, the first thing that comes to mind for me is you need to be really damn clear on what your margins are where your highest expense is 
um, how are your margins doing over time? You know, if you can sit down and you can tell me, uh, you know, where things were at last month, um, where were your margins at? Why were your margins up or down? Uh, you know, just tell me how the company is operating from a business 101 fundamental standpoint. If you can tell me that, then I feel like, great, you, you know, you have a good grasp on the health of your company. But I really believe there's a ton of companies out there, digital agencies included in that, that just kind of operate from the hip. You know, that they're captains of the ship grabbing the steering wheel and just kind of driving in any old direction that feels right. And one of my big take-homes from joining EO and understanding uh, EOS traction, um, you know, the whole traction kind of operating system of businesses, it's, it's one of those things where it's become really clear to me that I wasn't looking at the damn dashboard. I was a cowboy <laughs> behind the wheel, right? You were like, on the roof, like saying, go faster, right? <laughs> yeah, go faster and drinking my whiskey. Like, woohoo, this is great. I mean, now when uh, you know I'm doing my work with uh, the framework or V16, I'm looking at my cash flow. I'm looking at my margins. I'm looking at each project and figuring out, was that profitable or was it not? And why was it profitable? Why wasn't it? You know, and taking the time to actually do the work to look at all of the metrics. And you know, I, I feel like it's easy to get lost in all those metrics. And you could have 20 to 30 metrics and, and just see so much data it becomes confusing. But if you can distill it down to three or four things that really tell the health of the company um, for your specific company, that's going to help so much in growing it and scaling it. And then what do you want to do with it when you scale it? When, when – do you hit that point in growing the business that you look at it and say, ha, I've made it. This is where I want to be. Because I'd argue that people don't think about that either. They just keep growing and growing and growing and growing to the point that they stress out. And I would also ask why. You know, Why are you growing? Do you intend to uh, want to grow V16 into like a really you know, big company for maybe the right reasons? Or I know you mentioned like exit – um, or you know, having somebody else kind of operate that. Are, are mm-hmm. you still trying to grow V16 into like a multi-million dollar operation that's just for the right reasons, or is it is it um, like something that you're, you know, maybe just going to kind of use as a great business in the in the meantime while the framework picks up, or like how does that fit? I I have no intent to grow V16 into a multi-million dollar business. Um, at the end of the day, V16 needs to be profitable. It needs to get the work done that's promised to the clients at the rate that I promised the work done at the clients, and it has to have the margins that I need to make it successful. If I can do those three things and I can slowly scale and retain those three attributes, um, great. We'll see how big it goes. Um, but the the intention is not to grow this thing and just grow it for growth's sake. It's to grow it in a healthy way and see where it goes. You know, but I'm not I'm not setting out uh, with V16 to just take on the world and light it on fire. I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, it, I just want to do great work for the clients. I want to get it done on time. I don't want a lot of drama. I want people to be happy with the work they're doing, and I want the people working with me to be happy. And if all three of us are happy, then that's a success in my book as long as we can continue to scale that. 
let's talk about like your your partners at Emulus. You mentioned a couple times here that they were kind of happy doing the work, right? They liked mm-hmm. the you know the getting their hands dirty and stuff like that. And I, I have to imagine there's a lot of agency owners that are in the business because they probably were good at doing the work and they just went out on their own. And you know maybe at some point that changed for them, like accidentally, like kind of organically, like they started just doing less and less work. At least I know that was the case for myself. Was mm-hmm. you know one, at one point you know our designers were like, yeah, you're not really that good at this anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> so like you should go do something else but like you know then you talk to somebody uh like Keith Roberts who's actually on on one of our episodes uh and, and you know he's still like kind of their chief designer chief creative guy like he's still getting his hands dirty and he's been able to make that work so you know what kind of advice do you have for the agency owner that maybe loves doing the work and feels like they've become too business right is there is it possible for them to continue to grow a business or scale it should they find somebody else to to partner with like how would you suggest to like your old partners that if they wanted to stay as owners but still do the work like how do you solve that problem Mm. you know i i think the answer is listen to yourself and be honest with yourself be intellectually honest with your abilities and looking at the team and looking at where you contribute the most value and for instance, when I looked at how Scott contributed um, to the team and I looked at the other designers, Scott was a really good designer. He wasn't as fast as some of the other designers at churning out the work. Um, and I felt other designers were more strategic with the client. Scott was more reserved and more contemplative. And he would just sit back, process things, and then slowly churn out work. And that's what he liked to do. He didn't want to manage a team of designers. He said he did, but I would I would argue that if he was here right now, I'd call bullshit on that. I call <laughs> bullshit at the time too. Like he's not a manager of designers, you know, in, in that sense. Um, you know, he's a, he's a really good designer at doing that kind of work. And the same with John, but John was honest with that. John did not want to manage a team of developers. He said he liked doing the work and he was so happy sitting there doing the work. So we never pushed him to become like a, a director of a bunch of uh, developers that he was mm. honest with that. Um, and I think so there I think is, there's a very different like person. You're, I think that's a really awesome insight. Like the person that <laughs> is a great manager of certain types of talent, like, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be great in that talent area themselves, but like some of the best like sales managers are actually terrible at selling. Like you don't want them to sell. They're proficient at like, you know, managing salespeople or, or, you know, the, the person that could manage great designers maybe, uh, you know, knows how to get the best work out of other people and mm-hmm. knows how to tell what great work is and what bad work is. They're almost more of a critic than anything. Um, but maybe they're not going to just default to, okay, I'll just do this myself, right? Like you almost don't want the designer design manager to always have the solution of, I'm just going to do this myself or I'll, I'll, I'll fill the gaps. Right. Cause then you're not going to get mm-hmm. the best out of the team. Like, do you find that that was kind of how it played out that he was really good at what he did, but wasn't as interested in trying to bring the best out of other people, which is a key part of being a great manager. Um, I thought that actually, I thought he did a fairly good job at letting his, the few designers that he managed, letting them, um, have free reign. Um, and I thought that was that was something he did rather well. He did let them have free reign. I think where uh, that failed for us was the lead creative at the company needs to be the articulate, charismatic visionary of the design side of everything that we do. 
And I felt there were other members on our team that carried that torch better than he did. And if we're going to sell work and we're going to sell from a creative standpoint, we needed someone to come in there and be enthusiastic about the design and really sell the design because they have a grander vision for it. He wasn't that guy. Um, and so it, it created a, an odd dynamic within the team because I had designers that were under him that were better at, at creative direction and better at selling creative than he was. And ultimately, that's what forced him out. We, we pushed him out and we promoted one of, his, um, one of his designers to creative director. And at that point, we were able to sell higher-end design work to, to clientele like Boy Scouts of America and Michael J. Fox Foundation. Earlier, you mentioned uh, the framework. And mm-hmm. I, I know you kind of talked about how you know, that is a coaching kind of consultancy where you're, you're basically – can, can act as if you're almost like an interim business partner, a sounding yep. board, somebody to come in. Do you think that that like, idea for you is because you kind of had like 13 years of, of experience with other partners that maybe part of it didn't like turn out super great and you kind of see where the gaps can be there? Or like why, why would you start that company? <clears throat> so one of the things that I realized when I was at Emulus is there were a lot of things I could have, should have, would have done in retrospect. But what I didn't do is have those tough conversations with my business partners and with myself and with the employees to make those changes happen. Um, I've learned uh, over the years that you have to have those tough conversations. And I, I had those conversations at Eden, which was the Techstars company I was at prior, um, I mean, just a few months ago. But one thing I realized is that when I was coached at Emulus, um, my coach at the time was hearing everything from from my perspective, my vantage point. And so he's only hearing my bullshit, right? And at the end of the day, what I would have loved to have had is a coach that heard my story, then went in and talked to my team to say, hey, what's your perspective on George and how he contributes and the job that he's doing here at Emulus? And then I'd like him to talk to my partners, and then I'd like him to talk to my clients. Because if he did that, I would have a very well-rounded perspective of what's going on, and it might open me up to grow more in other areas as long as he was willing to tell me the things I didn't want to hear. And uh, that was I, – I would have loved to have had that, and that was kind of the driving factor for starting up the framework because I want to come in and sit down with the team, and if the team says to me, hey, we're stuck on X, Y, and Z, or we haven't grown, or there's some kind of dysfunction within the company – let me add it. I want to come in. I want to sniff out this dysfunction. I want to talk to the owners, the team, the clients. I want to talk to everybody. And I want to find out what's really going on and then lay it out on the table and say, hey, this is the way I see things. Things aren't going to change unless you do X, Y, and Z. I, I almost feel like when I, when I hear things like have the tough conversations, talking mm-hmm. to you know each of the different – I almost feel like it's like a group therapy like like requirement for businesses at some level because you have like <laughs> yeah like at the core issue like you've got these people problems you have these con- these really you know difficult conversations that just aren't being had which mean that problems maybe persist for way longer than they should I mean I know with with you gurus we've had you know uh, partner buyouts where we had somebody that was you know part of the company that ultimately wasn't really a part of the long term vision and you know we let that go for a really long time and it was mm-hmm. like then you're like oh wait a minute the business isn't healthy it's not like doing what you wanted to. And 
it's probably you know easy. In my 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 first company, we just kind of avoided those tough conversations. We're like, we don't, exactly. we don't need to have that. Like exactly. we have. I remember one time we had a marketing coordinator that worked for us for 15 months, and I think we didn't even know what she was doing for 14 of those 15 months. Like we weren't really sure, <laughs> like what purpose she served the company, and we're like, eh, we'll just we'll just deal with that later, right? It's like that's insane. Like you've got like payroll, you're paying somebody like every single month to come into work. Like obviously they're probably not happy. Like so, any any advice? I mean, obviously you're you're helping entrepreneurs maybe you're becoming like more of a catalyst to have those tough conversations. But like, how do you identify when there is a tough conversation to, to, that needs to be had? And, you know, any advice besides just like throwing it all on the, on the conference room table? Like, how do you actually approach that without like, you know, I mean, there might be tears, but without like, you know, lawsuits or something, I don't know. You know yeah. Like- I mean, to me, it's just re- a building rapport with each of the people I talk to and creating a trusting uh, a trusting setting and to ask probing questions, you know, uh, continue to ask why, you know, and, and, and try to get to the heart of the matter. You know, most of the time, if I'm sitting down with an employee, um, at first they're not going to just divulge everything to me. Um, so it's a matter of just creating that level of trust and letting them understand that I'm here to help, that I'm trying to make their job easier. And I'm just trying to help everybody. I'm not trying to cut anybody's heads off. I'm just coming in to figure out what's going on and what can be done better. And then after a while, after enough conversation, I feel like I can build rapport up with people rather quickly um, and just really get to the heart of the matter. I mean, I, I one of uh, the companies I was in, it was really clear that the owner just doesn't – they don't want to be working on growing the company. They want to be working in the company, yet they have employees – that are kind of roadblocked because they want to be working on the company and they want to be growing the company, but they see him as a roadblock to that. And so at the end of the day, um, I just called it out. I'm just like, look, you want to be working in the company, not on it. So why don't you? You know, and, and it comes down to, well, you know, I'm, I'm the founder. I'm the president. So if I'm the founder or the president, I need to be leading the company up. I'm like, why? Why do you need to do that? Why can't somebody else do that? You're a founder. Like ultimately it comes down to ego and so many damn decisions with companies just come down to ego. It's, it's ego issues or it comes down to not making the time to sit back and evaluate what's going on. Like you said, with the person who was working for 14 months, he had no idea what the hell she was doing. You know, um, it's just taking a step back and being like, well, why are we doing this for? Why is that person here? What is their role? Where are they being held? Where are they being roadblocked? And then just, Figuring it out from there. I know you were a pretty uh, a big part of TEDx Boulder, kind of being formed and taking off. I know you were doing a lot of work with TEDx Boulder. Are you are you still doing TEDx stuff? I am not. Uh, this was year seven. This was our best year ever, and um, it was great. You know, I started it up and then partnered up with Andrew Hyde, and we were killing it for seven years. And to me, it's ran its course. Uh, you know, there's really not much else we can do that's going to hold my interest with TEDx Boulder. And that was one of those tough conversations. I decided not to Brett Favre it. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I was like, hey, we're on top. Let's go out while there's some fuel in the tank. And I, and I still like this thing. And I told Andrew, I'm like, look, I, I'm not coming back. I mean, Andrew's going to continue to run it. He's got a great team and it's going to continue to do awesome. And it's going to be interesting for me to have the perspective of an audience member for once. In uh, in five years, do you think you're going to be? Is the the vision for you to be a hundred percent framework, or or just still kind of running agency and also doing the framework, or is there other entrepreneurial ventures you think you're going to be working on in five years? 
Uh, I think there'll be other things I'm working <laughs> on in five years. I mean, at the end of the day, the consulting piece, the framework piece, I know I still want to have that there. What what degree V16 is in existence and, and how much I uh, invest in that is up in the air. I don't know. We'll see how that forms. Um, but the consulting thing I definitely want to do, and I want to build an entrepreneurial network on top of the uh, framework consulting that's really geared at lifestyle entrepreneurs, um, basically recreating some of the elements that are found in EO, um, EO's accelerator program, but making it more virtual and uh, turning it into a, like an online forum, a, a virtual forum of members that can all trust each other and maybe do a yearly event where I pull them all together. That sounds awesome. Is there anything that you you know see in the future for agency owners, digital agency owners that they should be paying attention to right now? I just feel like the this space is becoming highly commoditized. Um, there are so many different products out there that um, people can use to get the job done that used to take uh, you know a team to build. I mean, Squarespace is 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 not a godsend, but um, <laughs> it's, it's it's there, right? But I mean, people there. are obviously doing it's something there. with it. It's there, but I see more and more people using it, and I feel like products like Squarespace are only going to get more refined, are only going to get better, and clients are now seeing them as a viable alternative to smaller projects. So, if you're doing projects that are sub ten thousand uh, dollars, you're going to have to compete with something like Squarespace. So. Get above that number as soon as possible and start doing higher-end strategic kind of consulting and getting out of the the, the, the straight-up HTML front-end stuff because that's all getting taken care of by Squarespace. Um, you know, I just, and I feel like just competition overall is just becoming more and more and more. Everyone's, everyone's jumped on this um, this digital agency model and there's so many different competitors out there. Um, it's hard to differentiate. So – I would argue that that would be kind of a key thing. Focus on what it is that you do extremely well and accentuate that. Awesome. George, this has been uh, a fantastic amount of information, insight from from your uh, career as an agency owner. I want to shift gears now and jump to our lightning round. Uh, you ready for this? Mm-hmm. This, this, this is where it gets crazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So, so first lightning round question, what is the best advice you've ever received? Okay. Um, <clears throat> this one, I think, really depends on the context of where I'm at when you're asking me this question. Um, but for me, it's really follow something that you're interested in, um, not what you're passionate about, because I think it's impossible to know what you're passionate about until you get a chance to explore all the things that you're interested in. So I would argue that you explore what you're interested in and then ask yourself if you can make money doing it. And if so, continue to explore it. The more you explore it, the more you'll see if you're actually passionate about it. So if you can have something that you're making money in and you're passionate about it and you're really interested in it, great. Love it. So interest plus money might get you to passion. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, But I think it's a misnomer to say follow your passion. I think that's horrible advice. Yeah, for sure. So which – second question here. Which of your personal habits has contributed most to your success? Uh, the whole golden rule: uh, treat people how you'd like to be treated. Um, you know, I'm far from perfect, and I and I and I will say I strive for this standard. You know, when I work with people, when I have clients, when I have uh, contractors that I'm working with, I try to treat them the way that I like to be treated, and I feel like 
that has really helped me build trusting, long-lasting relationships, friendships. Um, I got clients that are, are friends with me uh, to this day that I've had for 12 years that we've done business with each other years ago, but now we're friends. I mean, it's that golden rule I think is clutch. Awesome. Is there any, any, uh, resource like a, a tool, let's say like Evernote or something like that, that you could share with our listeners. It's been really helpful for you as an entrepreneur and agency owner. Not Evernote. Uh, it's too bloated in my book. <laughs> I'm done with Evernote. But there's one tool that I feel like is a little known tool that I came across that I absolutely cannot live without at this point. Um, and it's a it's a website called uh, Pocketsmith, and it helps you do cash flow forecasting. So it hooks into all of your um, your 401k, your bank accounts, your credit card accounts. Looks at and does its own. It's budgeting similar to Zero does. You know, it goes in and analyzes all of your uh, expenses, and it just creates these beautiful cash flow charts. So you can get a really clear understanding of where you're at with your personal life or with your business finances. Um, Because I think without that understanding, you have no freaking clue how things are looking from a financial perspective. So, so Pocketsmith works for personal and and business. Is that right? You can use it for either or. Um, Really cool. You know, I have. I have one version that I'm using for the business, and I have another instance where I'm using for personal. I, I know what I'm doing uh, after this interview now. <laughs> oh, trust me. Pocketsmith is fantastic. What's a, uh, what's a book that you'd recommend to our listeners and why? Can I give you two? Just for you, George. Okay. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was the same author. So Ryan Holiday, um, he's got two books, The Obstacle is the Way and The Ego is the Enemy. Um, I just... Uh, read those books a few months ago, and I read them again because they were so good. Um, I think they speak to the challenger, challenges that entrepreneurs face, um, but don't discuss with each other unless they're in circles like EO. Um, you know, there's some really deep stuff that uh, comes out of those books when it comes to thinking around business, yourself, why you're showing up, et cetera, et cetera. I uh, I loved the obstacle is the way I have not read his his newer book but uh, I'm on his his reading list that guy Ryan Holiday reads I think more books than anybody I have ever <laughs> he's a beast <laughs> he's like oh here's the thirty books I read this month you're like what? yeah I mean he's he's his books remind me of Malcolm Gladwell books mm. I mean I really I like them and ego of the enemy uh, ego is the enemy has been great awesome so, sounds like obviously with uh, some of your your kind of recent observations and things like that, that that's maybe influenced uh, thoughts you oh, had on yeah. that topic. Absolutely. So uh, can you tell the, our audience about how uh, they can find out more about you and uh, where they can check out anything that you might have for them? Yeah, it's basically anything at gmorris.com. So website gmorris.com, Twitter gmorris, and um, <clears throat> Facebook gmorris. Um, anybody can reach out to me, email me, uh, love to get back to people. I usually get back to people pretty damn quick. Um, so go to those things and you can learn more about what it is I'm up to and, uh, reach out with any kind of questions. I'd be happy to chat. Awesome. Yeah. I definitely recommend anybody will, will include in our show notes, but check out the framework. Uh, I know for a lot of folks that don't have a business partner, that could be, uh, highly useful. So, um, yep. you know, definitely, uh, take a look at that if you're interested in that and, uh, gmorris.com to, to reach out to George. So we, uh, also link out to that. So George, I just want to thank you so much, man, for hanging out with us today. I feel like there's so many gold nuggets from this talk. Uh, and I just wish you all the best with V16, the framework EO, and also, you know, just thanking you for putting together, you know, and making TEDx possible. I think you've done so much for entrepreneurship in Colorado and, and really beyond that. I think you've, uh, you've just done such an amazing job up until this point. Just so a uh, big thank you from our, our team here at Gurus. I appreciate that. Thanks a lot, Brent. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak to everybody. 
All right. We'll uh, talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. You have a good one.